Thank you for listening to Franklin City Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information on Franklin City Church, please check us out at www.franklincitychurch.com. All right, well, good morning, church. If you guys have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 26, is where we're going to be this morning as we continue preaching through the book of Mark. And as you are turning there, I want to use an illustration from our history books uh, this morning that I hope will help kind of set up these two parables we're about to hear Jesus uh, teach us. A little over 200 years ago, in 1805, Thomas Jefferson commissioned Meriwether Lewis and William Clark to find the source of the Missouri River, okay? And you maybe remember Lewis and Clark from history class, and of course, don't forget about Sacagawea. She joined them on this expedition as well. And so the Missouri River, this great, mighty river, they were commissioned to go find the source, to find where it starts. And the Missouri River is a major river. I mean, it has a major impact on that region. Um, it's, it's about 2,000 miles long. It flows into the Mississippi River just north of St. Louis. And when it forms uh, with the Mississippi River, it forms the fourth longest river system in the world. It's a huge river. has a major impact on people, for animals, for the ecosystem. And Lewis and Clark were to find its source. They were going to find where this great river started. And so it took them a little over a year, kind of traveling upstream. But eventually around the Montana-Idaho border, they found the source. They found where the river starts. And what they found is that it is three small little streams, when joined together, formed the start of the Missouri River. And when Lewis and Clark found it, they literally could put a foot on each side and stand on top of the start of this mighty river. The start of the Missouri River looks very different than the end. It starts very small and simple, and yet in the end, with the the powerful currents and combining with the Mississippi River, it ends up being one of the fourth largest, longest, excuse me, river systems in the world. And this morning, as we jump into these two parables, we again are talking about parables that Jesus was teaching, where he was trying to teach us about the kingdom of God. And so let me recap a little bit about the kingdom of God and the parables that we've already covered this far. Uh, Because when we talk about the kingdom of God, it's important for you to understand what Jesus is talking about. Now, certainly we know that that God is sovereignly ruling and, and in control of all things in the universe. He's ruling and reigning over creation. But when Jesus and the disciples are talking about the kingdom of God, that the kingdom of God is at hand, the kingdom of God is here, what they are referring to is the rule and reign of Christ over the hearts of his people, over the hearts of the redeemed. And so when Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God, he's not necessarily talking about a certain location or a certain place, but it's better to be understood as a kingship. A kingship. Christ came proclaiming that he was here to rescue and redeem a people from the kingdom of darkness and transfer them to the kingdom of God. And so we're in the midst of parables. Jesus is teaching us more about the kingdom of God. And we saw a couple of weeks ago when we looked at the parable of the soils, uh, Jesus was teaching us that there's going to be different responses to Christ being king, right? It's going to be received a little differently. And so we looked at the different types of soils, kind of the, the hard path, the rocky soil, the thorns, many of which were a little discouraging as, as to how Christ would be received. But then we learned that there is going to be a good soil, a soil that God supernaturally works in and through that will receive Christ and that God is going 
going to produce exponential amounts of fruit in and through. And then last week, we learned how the rule and reign of Christ is not to be hidden. It's not to be covered up, right? We learned that Jesus is the light of the world. He is to be held forth. He's not our secret, right? We are to, we are to hold him up to the world. He's not to be kept our, our own little secret. He is to be exalted and not eclipsed by our own glory or our own pursuits. And now we arrive at two more parables, all right? This is kind of the last week for right now where we'll be in parables about the kingdom of God. And these two parables should be a great encouragement to us as Jesus is once again showing us how the rule and reign of Christ is going to become to be fully realized here in the world. And what these parables, one thing they are going to do is they are going to address our desire to accomplish great and significant things for the kingdom, Okay, these two parables, one thing they're going to do is that they are going to address our desire to accomplish great and significant things for the kingdom. Because many of us, many of us, we want to be like the mighty Missouri River, right? Now, you've maybe never actually said those words. That, that's a little weird, right? But many of us, we want to be like the mighty Missouri River. We want to have a significant impact on the world. We want to do great, important things. We want to be a mighty, you know, current and river that, that, that helps change the world, right? We want this. We want to be significant. But I don't know about you, most of my days do not always feel very significant. Most of my days feel very mundane. They feel very routine. And it feels like most of the things that I'm doing are very small and very insignificant. And the reason we feel this way is often, you see, we forget that the mighty Missouri River, it starts as three little streams that you can stand on top of. And this morning, we are going to learn that the kingdom of God, in the same way, starts small, but grows to produce significant results. Significant results. And this morning, we're going to learn that Jesus has removed the burden and the responsibility of kingdom growth off of our shoulders and put them on himself. And then we're also going to see this morning that even the small and seemingly insignificant things in life, when placed in the hands of Jesus, they will be eternally significant. Okay? You guys ready? We've already talked about history, uh, geography, and Jesus, so I think we're ready. Let's go. Mark 4, verse 26. Mark 4, verse 26. And he said, The kingdom of God is, is, is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. Okay, the kingdom of God. Remember, the, the rule and reign of Christ over the hearts of his people, it is growing, meaning more and more people are receiving Christ as king. Okay, they are receiving the forgiveness that Christ offers. They are being redeemed from the kingdom of darkness. They're being purchased and transferred to the kingdom of Christ. Okay, and to help us understand how this is happening, Jesus uses an illustration, right? A parable to kind of clarify this truth about how this is happening in the world. And he says, this is happening in the same way when you scatter seed, when you plant seed, you go off and you do other things, and the seed sprouts on its own. Seed sprouts on its own. Verse 28 says, the earth produces by itself. 
by itself. Those English words by itself in the original language is one Greek word. It's the Greek word automatos, automatos. I practiced a lot to be able to say that. So, yeah, I got the thumbs up from the back. All right, automatos, right? It has a similar root as the English word automatic, okay, automatic. Jesus is saying when Christ is proclaimed, when the word is proclaimed, it produces results automatically, automatos, by itself. It produces results that are not dependent on human effort. Let me say that again. It produces results that are not dependent on human effort. And you remember I shared this passage uh, from a couple of weeks ago from Isaiah 55. And I'll share it with you again this morning. Isaiah 55, verses 9 through 11. It says, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. The word of God, the message of God, will accomplish what God has purposed for it. And it will succeed in the things for which God sent it. No, notice in this parable, then, where the power is. Okay, where is the power in this parable? Is the power in the ability or the skill set of the sower? Or is it in the power of the word? Is it in the power, in the, in the, is the power in the charisma of the sower or the eloquence of speech or a sower that has all the answers and took an apologetics class? Or is the power in the seed? And Jesus taught in the parable of the sowers, he taught about the seed. He said that the seed is the word, right? The word of God. And remember, when we say the word of God, what we mean by the word of God, when we're talking about the word of God, we mean the message of God, which consists not only of scripture, of our Bible, but also Jesus, who is the word in flesh, in the flesh, okay? Jesus fully embodies the message of God, so it is correct and consistent to say that the word of God is not only our Bibles, but it is also Jesus, now, church, don't miss, don't miss this in this parable. Don't miss how freeing this parable is for you and for me. The burden has been taken off of our shoulders. The word will produce results automatically, and it is not dependent upon human effort. Now, I, I didn't say it doesn't involve human effort, okay? I didn't say that. I said it's not dependent upon human effort. Because you might be thinking, well, does this mean that we just sit around? We just sit around, wait for Christ to return? I mean, if the word is going to produce automatically, do I really need to be loving my neighbor? Do I really need to be making disciples? Do I really need to be sharing the gospel? I mean, can't I just sit around and binge on Netflix and argue on social media, right? Now listen, I think every now and then a binge on Netflix is okay. However, I've never seen an argument on social media produce any fruit, okay? That's just, that's just a side note for you. But Jesus isn't saying that we don't participate in his kingdom and in seeing it come to be fully realized. 
He's saying we can participate with joy in kingdom work knowing that the burden to produce, the responsibility to produce, is not dependent upon us. It's not dependent upon our power, but on the power of the word. The power of the word. So don't miss this. If you take notes, I want you to write this down. If you don't take notes, say this over and over in your head until it sinks in, okay? Kingdom work is often carried out through us, but it is not dependent upon us. I'll say it again. Kingdom work is often carried out through us, but it is not dependent upon us. I mean, what a weight this lifts off of our shoulders. If this was not true, if this was not true, life would be miserable. I mean, if you really thought about this, if it was dependent upon us, if the responsibility was on us, I would be miserable. I mean, just even thinking about the salvation of my boys, right? If that was dependent upon me, that, if that burden was on my shoulders, I'm telling you, I would be crushed under that weight. I would not sleep at night. I would agonize over if I had really proclaimed the gospel well enough or really taught the, the, the Bible well enough, if I'd really put it in a way that was age appropriate so they could respond to it. I would constantly be thinking about that. I would not sleep at night. I would constantly stress if I had really done all I could so that my boys could respond to the gospel. But listen, kingdom, kingdom work while it is often carried out through us, it is not dependent upon us. The word produces on its own. It's the power of the word. Now listen, I certainly believe that God has placed Britt and myself in our boys' lives to share with them the, the word, to cultivate a, a home where Jesus is celebrated, to, to show them how grace is understood and applied, where the love and joy of God permeates everything we do. So trust me, I am going to pour as much lighter fluid as I can on the hearts of my kids, but it will ultimately have to be God that lights the fire. And I plead almost daily that my boys would receive Christ as their Savior and King. I don't, know, I don't know if you guys know this, but September, Jackson will be turning six, and so he'll probably start being in here on Sunday mornings with us. And so uh, as far as I'm concerned, every sermon leading up to then has been practice for when my boy is sitting in here, okay? I do have favorites here at the church. I, I'll just be honest. I've got a few favorites. And when they're in here, you can trust me, I'm going to bring it every Sunday, all right? Yeah. But listen, the reception of the kingdom is not dependent upon us. And that is, that is a freeing, a life-giving, joy-giving reality. Because if we don't understand that, even the Great Commission, right, it all of a sudden becomes a duty and not a delight. I mean, go into all the world and make disciples, go into all the world and, and help people follow Jesus. If that is dependent upon us, that is a crushing weight and burden and duty, but it's not supposed to be that way. It's supposed to be a delight to take part in kingdom work. If the success of the Great Commission is dependent upon the power of Christians, then we are in big trouble. Because I know a lot of Christians, and and. No offense, but Christians are often very fickle. 
right? They're, they're, they're often, uh, they often doubt, they often despair, they're, they are prone to wander, and I'm including myself in this thing, okay? But if the power of the Great Commission to succeed, if the, if the success of the Great Commission is dependent upon the Christian's power, then we are in big trouble, and that is a huge burden. But Jesus is teaching us that while God will work through us to accomplish his work, the success of his work is not ultimately dependent upon our power, but instead on the power of his word. And all those who felt a burden lifted off of them said, praise, praise God. I was going to see it. I, I figured we might have praise the Lord, praise God. We might have a split. So that was an experiment. Uh, side note, we, we do need to start, I want some more feedback and talking from you guys. We're, we're almost a one-year-old church, and most one-year-olds at least start learning how to talk a little bit. So at least one word at a time, we're going we're gonna to work on it. Okay. Um, but the Corinthians, the Corinthians, they started to get a little too dependent upon the power and abilities of men and women instead of on Christ. And Paul's response to them was this in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 4 and 7. He says, for when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not merely being human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Church, we are to plant, we are to water, but God gives the growth. But here's the difficult part. What happens after you plant and what happens after you water? You wait. We, we have a master gardener in the front row. I don't know if you know that, but Pastor Gary is also a master gardener. So after you plant, after you water, comes the hard part. You wait, right? You don't see immediate results. You don't plant water, and then boom, it's an apple tree, right? You plant, you water, and then you have to wait. And in the waiting, it takes faith. It takes faith to wait and trust that God will bring the growth. But we don't like to wait, do we? We want to plant, we want to water, we want to see immediate results. But that's not typically how God works, and that's not how the kingdom of God is going to come to be fully realized here in this world. When Jesus arrived on the scene, it wasn't all of a sudden the kingdom fully realized. No, it's been a process. There has been planting, there has been watering, and then there has been waiting by faith and trusting that God will produce results. So church, we need to hear this, okay? We need to hear this. Many times, Christians, we just want to be involved with ministries, churches, mission work, or service opportunities where we can see immediate results, right? Those are the ones that it's not hard to get volunteers for that when you can see immediate results. But we often neglect serving in ways where we might have to wait years and years and years to see results. And you guys need to understand this, especially here at this church as a part of a church plant, okay? Church planting many times does not produce immediate results. It doesn't. Most, most church planting experts will say that, ch that church plants will see most of their fruit after year five. Now here's the sad thing. 
Most church plants do not make it to year five, okay? That's another statistic. Most church plants don't make it to year five. The sad thing is if they, if they would have just kind of stayed faithful and not despaired and not fallen apart and not burned out, most church plants see fruit from years five through ten is the majority of when they see fruit and God working. Church planting can sometimes feel like a grind. It's a, it's a long-term play. But church planting and planting a church here in Franklin is, however, I believe the most effective way to see the Great Commission carried out here in Franklin for years and years to come. Planting healthy churches that are going to last and are going to replicate. And I was recently encouraged by someone who said, don't, don't overestimate what your church can accomplish in a year, but don't underestimate what it can accomplish in 10. I thought that was really good. Don't overestimate what you can accomplish in your church plant in a year, but don't underestimate what's going to happen in 10. And church, whether it be church planting or whether, what, whatever God calls you to at work or in your home or in your neighborhood, Jesus is teaching us that the burden to produce kingdom results, it has been lifted off of our shoulders and it is not dependent upon us. And so we will be faithful to plant we will be faithful to water, and then we will ask God to give us the faith to wait and trust that God will produce results. So fellow church planners, let me exhort you with this. If you're taking notes, write this down. Carry it with you this week. Trust God to produce. You be faithful in the process. Trust God to produce. You be faithful in the process. You be faithful in the process of hearing the word preached. You be faithful in the process of receiving this word. You be faithful in the process of sharing this word. You be faithful in the process of showing up to city group and cultivating community. You be faithful in the process of finding ways to serve one another and to serve our city. You be faithful in the process of praying for our church and for our city. And I'm telling you, church, you be faithful to plant and water, and I believe we are going to marvel at what God will produce here in Franklin. I believe 10 years from now, we won't even be able to imagine what God is going to do here in Franklin. We must trust God to produce. We must be faithful in the process. Look now at verse 30, Mark 4, verse 30. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. You remember the Missouri River, right? Starts small, but becomes significant. Jesus said the kingdom of God is the same way. And he uses the illustration of a mustard seed, which a mustard seed is a really, really, really small seed. And it was one of the smallest seeds that they would have known in that region. The farmers would have known that that plant, the mustard seed, was one of the smallest. Now, let me, let me point out something to you I want you to be aware of, uh, that some people have used this verse to try and disprove the inerrancy of Scripture. Okay, we believe that scripture is inerrant, meaning it is without error, that everything it says is true. And so people have read this parable, and again, they have read this parable 
That, and it says that the mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds on earth. And they've objected and said, well, actually, maybe some of you guys have friends like this, right? Well, actually, the seed of an orchid is smaller than a mustard seed. Therefore, this is untrue. Therefore, Scripture is not inerrant. Therefore, we can't trust anything else it says. And this is where you need to grow and understand on how to interpret different genres of Scripture, okay? And we won't go into depth with this this morning, but people who make this argument, they don't understand how to interpret parables, okay? Typically in a parable, Jesus is making a big point. He's making one point or clarifying one truth, and the parable then isn't meant for us to press on every little detail to find other meaning in it. And so we must understand that parables are interpreted differently than narrative text in the Bible or different from poetry or history or letters or prophecy. Okay, they are interpreted differently. Jesus was merely talking about the mustard seed as a way to make a point to his original audience. He was not giving a botany lecture as to what the smallest seeds were, okay? He was saying to his original audience, this is what he was trying to say, he was saying, hey, you know how the mustard seed is one of the smallest seeds that you plant that you are familiar with? And you know then how that seed then grows to, to a tree or a bush that's like 10 or 20 feet tall? And you know how that's pretty surprising that coming from small, humble beginnings, it's now produced this large tree? He's saying the kingdom of God is like that. The kingdom of God is like that. So to use this parable to, to pick it apart, to say that scripture is untrue, it's just not a sound argument. But nonetheless, people do try to make it. Jesus wasn't using this parable to teach the, what the smallest seed was. He's using the parable to teach us that the rule and reign of Christ over the hearts of his people, it's going to start small, like a mustard seed. And then it's going to grow into something out of proportion to its simple beginnings. The kingdom isn't going to come like we thought the kingdom would come right? It's not going to come all at once. It's not going to come with a royal procession or a massive military. No, it's not going to be what we would expect a kingdom on earth to come like. It's going to start small. There's going to be simple and humble beginnings to this kingdom. And simple and humble beginnings might be an understatement. I mean, think about this. It's going to consist of a baby being born in a manger, it's going to consist of an innocent man being killed on a cross. It's going to consist of 12 very ordinary, average men taking this good news that God saves sinners through the accomplished work of Christ. These 12 ordinary, average men are going to take this to the entire world. But what will start small and simple is going to flourish into the kingdom being fully realized here on this earth as people from every tribe, tongue, and nation receive Christ as king. The significant results that we are trusting God to produce, they start small. It starts like a mustard seed. Church, Jesus is redefining for us what significant work looks like. Okay, in this parable, Jesus is redefining for us what significant work looks like. Because I think most of us, right, we have a desire to do significant work. We want our lives to be significant. We want to work on things that are going to be important and are going to cause change. Things that will make a difference. Things that will have an impact. Most of us want this. 
Whether it's, it's your work outside of your home or whether it's your work in your household, whether it's what, how you serve and what you do at church or in the community, most of us want to be involved in important or significant work that matters. But here are four lies. I'm going to share with you four lies that I believe uh, we falsely believe about significant work. Okay, So these are four lies we believe about significant work. First lie we believe is that for work to be significant, it has to be noticed and appreciated by others. First lie we believe is that for work to be significant, it has to be noticed and appreciated by others. This is why many times we can focus our energy and our desires to do things that are going to be instantly noticed by others. This is why it's easy to get volunteers for things that are going to be noticed and appreciated. And so then when our work is not noticed and our work is not appreciated, we tell ourselves the lie that it is not significant. But Jesus says, no, a mustard seed. You can't even notice it. You can't even notice this seed. But look at the significant results it produces. Here we learn that even the work that goes unnoticed is eternally significant. Does anyone out there have work that goes unnoticed? Yeah. Can I get an amen from some of the moms maybe, right? I mean, you wiped two butts and one nose in under 30 seconds and no one applauded your effort, right? I mean, you didn't get a standing ovation for that, that conflict you resolved. You kept, you know, anarchy from breaking out in your household. People have gotten a Nobel Peace Prize for doing less conflict resolution than you maybe did at your house. Okay, many times it can go unnoticed and it cannot be appreciated. Many times no one notices the day in and day out faithful love and grace and discipline and instruction that you are pouring into your kids. But you watch. The small things, just because they're small, does not mean they aren't significant. And you watch what it will produce in the lives of your kids. So four lies we believe about significant work. First lie we believe is that for something to be significant, it has to be noticed and appreciated by others. Second lie we believe is that we believe for us to accomplish something significant, we must have a lot to offer. We look at celebrity pastors, we look at famous missionaries, we look at the heroes of the faith, and we think, man, we could never do what they did. We don't have that much to offer. We don't have those skill sets and abilities. We don't have the, the giftings that they have. But church, listen. If you're taking notes, write this down too. In this parable, we learn that small things in the hands of a great God produce significant results. Small things in the hands of a great God produce significant results. And we won't talk too much about it this morning because in a few weeks we're going to be in the passage in Mark where Jesus feeds the 5,000. I mean, that's a pretty significant work, right? 5,000 men, we don't know even however many thousand women and children along with them. And Jesus feeds them all. That is significant work. But what did they have to offer Jesus? They had five loaves and two fish. Church, do not shy away from what God is calling you to do 
because you think you don't have much to offer. Spoiler alert, you don't have much to offer, okay? So you can just get over that part, all right? But what God has given you, you watch what happens when you give that back to God. You watch what he can do with your small, simple offerings. Third lie we believe about what significant work is, is that everyday things of life aren't significant. We believe this lie that the everyday things of life aren't significant. Church, don't get so occupied chasing the big, the flashy, the seemingly significant work that you neglect the small, simple, everyday tasks of life. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, he says this, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Do all to the glory of God. If you want to do significant things in your life, do everything to the glory of God. If you want to have an impact on the world, if you want to be used for kingdom work, you must see that the everyday things of life are eternally significant when they are done to the glory of God. Everything that is done for the glory of God is significant work. And this is what gets out of whack when people chase the big and the significant ministries. We can, in those moments, become more concerned about what we are achieving for God instead of how we can glorify God. And so if you see the significant kingdom work as being just the big talks or the big conferences or the big books or the big mission trips, then you will likely neglect the everyday faithfulness of reading God's word, of loving your spouse, of loving your neighbor, of teaching your kids, of Sabbathing and resting well. You will neglect being faithful with the seemingly small and insignificant things of life that God has entrusted you to. So whether you eat or whether you drink, whatever work you might be doing today, when it is done for the glory of God, it becomes eternally significant. Write this down as well, or, or dwell on this. Big or small, everything that is done for the glory of God is significant work. Big or small, everything that is done for the glory of God is significant work. From mowing someone's lawn to speaking at a national conference, from cleaning someone's gutters, right, to leading a ministry, from sharing Christ with the homeless to sharing Christ with world leaders, everything that is done for the glory of God is significant work. It might look like a mustard seed now, but small things in the hands of a great God produce significant results. Fourth lie we believe about significant work, this is the fourth and final lie we believe that I'm sharing with you this morning, is we falsely believe that prayer isn't significant work. We falsely believe that prayer isn't significant work. I mean, we pray, but do we really think that prayer is significant? Do we really think that prayer is having an impact on our world? Like, is this really significant work to be in prayer? And I'll close this morning with a story that I've shared before about Hudson Taylor. And it's not necessarily about Hudson Taylor, but more about Hudson Taylor's mother. And I know I, I couldn't remember exactly when I shared it before, so I figured it was safe to go ahead and share it again, all right? Hudson Taylor is a name that you've maybe heard of. He was born in 1832. 
and he went on to blaze the trail for mission work in China. But what I wanted to share with you and remind you of this morning was the simple, faithful prayer of his mother. And while it might seem like a small thing, it went on to produce significant kingdom results. Hudson Taylor grew up in a Christian home, but in his teenage years, he became skeptical of his faith. And this is what his friend Charles Spurgeon shared about Hudson's conversion. It's pretty cool. You maybe heard of Spurgeon. Spurgeon and Hudson Taylor were friends, right? We can only assume Hudson probably called him the Spurge. Uh, but again, that's just, that's just me assuming. I don't know. We don't know for sure on that. Okay, but this is what Spurgeon shared about his conversion. He said, One day, when his mother was away from home, a great yearning after her boy possessed her, and she went up to her room to plead with God that even now he would save him. And if I remember aright, she said that she would not leave the room until she had the assurance that her boy would be brought to Christ. And at length her faith triumphed, and she rose quite certain that all was well, that even now her son was saved. And what was he doing at that time? Hudson was having a half an hour to spare. He had wandered into his father's library, aimlessly took down one book after another to find some short and interesting passage to divert his mind. He could not find what he wanted in any of the books, so seeing a narrative tract, he took it up with the intention of reading the story, but putting it down when the sermon part of it began. And as he read, he came to the words, the finished work of Christ. And almost at that very moment in which his mother, who was miles away, claiming his soul of God, light came into his heart. And he saw that it was by the finished work of Christ that he was to be saved. And kneeling in his father's library, he sought and found the life of God. Some days afterwards, when his mother returned, he said to her, I have some news to tell you. Oh, I know what it is, she answered, smiling. You have given yourself to God. Who told you, he asked in astonishment. God told me, she said, and together they praised him, who at that same moment gave faith to the mother and life to the son, and who has since made him such a blessing to the world. That's what Charles Spurgeon was sharing about his friend Hudson Taylor. At age 21, Hudson sailed for China, to a country where the gospel had not been spread. He started a missionary agency at that time. And at, by the time he, he passed away at age 73, the China Inland Mission had over 800 other missionaries living in all 18 provinces of China, more than 300 mission stations, more than 500 local Chinese helpers, and 25,000 Christian converts. And today, there are approximately 200 million Christians in China. The faithful prayer of a mother, it seems so small. It seems so insignificant. It seems like it wouldn't matter. And yet, it was the faithful prayer of a mother that was the mustard seed that grew into a flourishing tree in China. It was the small stream that turned into a mighty river of life in China. When we trust that God is the one who will produce kingdom results, this frees us to be faithful in the small things. When it is God who is responsible for growth, we can be faithful in the small things that go unnoticed and that go unappreciated by others. When it is God who is responsible for the growth, we can trust that even though we don't have much to offer, 
we know that the small things in the hands of a great God produce significant results. When it is God who is responsible for the growth, we can trust that even the mundane, routine things of life, when they are done for the glory of God, are eternally significant. And when it is God who is responsible for the growth, we can get after it in prayer, knowing that God loves to save and to bless. And church, I'll leave you with this. May we trust God to produce. May we be faithful in the process. Let's pray. Father, we will, we will plant, we will water, but help us trust you and rely that it is by your power alone that we will see growth, that we will see more people receive you as their Savior and King. God, I ask that you would redeem in our minds those things that seem so small and insignificant in life. May they be done for your glory, God. May we see that in all that we do, glorifying you will produce significant things for your kingdom, God. May we not quickly forget what we've learned from these parables and from this passage, God. May it implant and stick in our hearts, and may it continue to grow and flourish, all for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.